Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Dr. Melissa Wynn, an inpatient, outpatient pain clinical pharmacy specialist from the VA Pell Healthcare System in Palo Alto, California. And today we'll be chatting about treating acute pain in patients, taking buprenorphine, and how we can provide optimal care for our patients. Joining us today are Dr. Tanya Yuritsky. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Tanya Yuritsky. I'm the Opioid Stewardship Coordinator at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And we have Dr. Vin Dow. Hello, everybody. I'm, uh, I'm glad to be a part of this podcast today. And he is the clinical pharmacist practitioner at the Pain Center in Minneapolis, VA. Uh, thanks for joining us today. So before we get started, I want to give some background on buprenorphine. Buprenorphine is a Schedule three controlled substance indicated for both opioid use disorder and pain management. It binds to mu, delta, kappa, and opioid receptor like one. But for today's purposes, we'll be mostly focusing on mu. At mu, it's a partial agonist where it can still deliver potent analgesia, but it has uh, limited side effects of a traditional opioid, like a ceiling effect, respiratory depression, euphoria, GI motility, physical dependence, abuse potential, withdrawal symptoms, mood symptoms, and uh, it also reduces dysphoria. Out of all the opioids, buprenorphine uh, binds the most strongly, and it's known to knock out other opioids bound to new receptor. High binding affinity is not the only thing we take into consideration, but also uh, receptor availability and occupancy. When evaluating buprenorphine receptor occupancy, sublingual maintenance doses of buprenorphine for OUD um, when given at 2, 16, and 32 milligrams per day has been seen to reduce whole brain mu opioid receptor binding availability at by 41, 80, and 84% respectively. So the mu receptors aren't 100% occupied. So if the patient requires additional pain control for full opioid agonist, they can still be effective. Um, from a safety perspective, decreased receptor availability means the risk of an accidental overdose is reduced as well. But from a clinical perspective, the nuance in understanding buprenorphine presents a challenge to clinicians when treating acute pain for patients taking buprenorphine. So let's talk to our expert today to bust some common treatment myths. First, I'd like to ask Dr. Dow, um, when using full uh, agus opioids for management of acute pain, um, they will not be fully effective because these patients are on buprenorphine. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Nguyen, for both the introduction um, and providing us with that background on buprenorphine. When talking about why there is a concern that full opioid agonists will be less effective for pain when patients are taking buprenorphine, my go-to is the parking lot analogy. If you consider a mu opioid receptor as a parking spot, only one car can be in that spot at a time. That car then can either be buprenorphine, which is a partial agonist, or a full opioid agonist. Additionally, buprenorphine has a greater affinity and can push full opioid agonists out of that parking spot. So the misconception is that full opioid agonists will be ineffective for acute or perioperative pain if patients are on buprenorphine. However, there are lots and lots of parking spots available, and there may still be spots available depending on how much buprenorphine a patient is actually using. My colleague, Dr. Oritsky, will elaborate on this in a bit. The bottom line is that you can, and often should, 
continue buprenorphine throughout the perioperative period for most surgical procedures. The key is to lower the buprenorphine dose so that enough parking spots, or AKA receptors, are available for opioid-induced analgesia. Now, there are very re varying recommendations in the literature um, with some guidance citing to reduce the buprenorphine to 16 milligrams per day or less on the day of surgery. And this allows for enough receptor availability um, so that full opioid agonists can be effective. You know, in practice, I actually often urge reduction to eight milligrams per day or less on the day of surgery um, to free up as many opioid receptors as you can should opioid analgesia be needed. The reason is if you don't reduce buprenorphine enough on the front end, you may find yourself in a situation where opioid-induced analgesia is impaired. Although tempting, it's a tricky proposition to reduce buprenorphine further once a patient is already on full opioid agonist for perioperative or acute, or acute pain. Because if you do that, um, as buprenorphine clears from the system, more parking spots become available and full opioid agonists become more potent, resulting in a greater chance of overdose. Another myth out there is that buprenorphine formulations uh, approved only for chronic pain and not opioid use disorders such as butrans patches and belbuca pose a significant interference concern. Now, these are typically considered low-dose formulations when compared to their opioid use dis disorder counterparts. Um, I say typically because belbuca can be titrated fairly high. Um, for the most part, it is fine to continue these formulations during the perioperative period as they are low potency and there should be plenty of receptors available for full opioid agonist induced analgesia. And since we are busting myths, you know, once in a while, we still get questions wondering if it's the naloxone component of the combination buprenorphine naloxone products like Suboxone, um, which can interfere with postoperative analgesia. And it really doesn't because the naloxone when given sublingually is poorly absorbed whether it's taken orally or sublingually, and really doesn't interfere that much with uh, full opioid agonists um, in terms of pain management. It's really the buprenorphine component that is the most interfering. So what can we do for these patients to optimize post-operative analgesia? First, we should work collaboratively with all the vested service lines. This often includes pain, anesthesia, medicine, and substance abuse services, um, and really to identify the patient early and determine if you are facing an elective or an emergent situation. Um, recall that buprenorphine is still an analgesic itself and has analgesic properties, um, although supplementing with full opioid agonist is frequently needed for postoperative pain, especially if the expectation is moderate or severe pain. Sometimes there are situations where you can't do anything pre-op, such as uh, uh, patients who receive subcutaneous extended release buprenorphine. You can't really reduce the dose once it's been given in those instances. And so for these patients and other patients where opioid analgesia is ineffective, it might be wise to have a multimodal analgesia plan ready, which includes regional anesthesia, adjunctive therapies, uh, for example, IV ketamine, um, and non-opioid pharmacology. One major takeaway is that even with guidance, um, care plans related to acute pain management in this demographic of patients should be individualized and collaborative. A primary goal is to have patients resume their full outpatient maintenance dose of buprenorphine as soon as possible, either prior to discharge or shortly thereafter, especially if they're using buprenorphine for opioid dependence or opioid use disorder. I wanted to ask Dr. Nguyen, what other myths regarding buprenorphine and acute pain have you seen in the practice community? Thanks. So for our next myth, we have 
Adding opioids for acute pain management may cause a relapse for patients with OUD or to full mute opioid agonists for Dr. Yuritsky. Hi, yes, thank you so much. Um, It's my pleasure to comment on this. And so more or less, um, when we talk about opioids, we're talking about a medication that has inherent risks. And so that puts the patient at risk for things, right? And we know that the initial exposure to opioids is what can really set someone up for some adverse effects. And so the risk of misuse is one of those risks. So happens that patients with OUD are at risk for relapse, right? It's a relapsing remitting disease, and we want to keep our patients safe. So the thing we know is that there is not data that supports that treating pain with full agonists leads to relapse. What we we do know on the flip side is that the stress of untreated pain will more likely lead to somebody potentially relapsing because they're they're seeking relief. Um, And so a lot of times our patients are threatening to leave. They're threatening to leave against medical advice or prior to completion of therapy and Oftentimes, they're citing uncontrolled pain as the reason. When we adequately treat their pain, which not uncommonly we use full agonists, um, they tend to stay or at least stay longer. And that's a big part of the equation. It's not going to solve the problem by just treating the pain. There, you know, It's a complex disease, but it is important that we do treat the pain in order to decrease the risk of other harms like leaving before they can get you know, complete therapy. So other things that we need to do to keep our patients safe, like Dr. Dow said, you know, we need to optimize our other agents, our non-opioids, our non-pharmacologic agents, uh, really key for anybody to make sure that we're, you know, providing full holistic analgesia. And then, you know, when we think about other things, like how do we keep our patients safe? Because we know that untreated or undertreated pain is a risk for misuse, sometimes leading patients to use, you know, the recreational substance, even in the hospital. Um, we can do things like monitoring for functions, setting expectations, right? Talking to patients about how we expect this to go as far as um, patients being having pain control. What, what kind of functional goals can we set? What kind of treatment goals can we set? Working with the patients so that we are establishing the conditions of how we're going to go, go forward together in, in treating this pain, knowing what the risks are of the medications. Um, it's important to monitor for things like sedation and other adverse effects so that we're uh, fully working together again to keep safe on all regards, not just specifically speaking about relapse, but just in general, as far as risks of of treating with opioids go. Finally, I think it's important to really leverage our community supports if the patients have them, hopefully they do. Um, If if family and friends are supportive, that would be very important to to help the patient get through this because there will be pain and it will not be completely gone. And uh, even if we give full agonists while they're inpatient, so, if they have a recovery program or someone they work with, really trying to amp that up during the time that we know they're going to, if it's an elective surgery or an elective intervention, that we know that they're going to be experiencing this increased stress. So that's really how we can move forward is, you know, treating pain appropriately based on the severity of the pain and what is indicated in general, and then devising a safe plan for opioid use. Great. Thank you so much. So our next myth um, is for anticipatory pain, such as elective surgery, uh, buprenorphine should be stopped. Okay. And I think um, that one's for me. And 
Dr. Dow touched on this with the parking lot analogy and talking about how we really um, still have receptors available when patients are on buprenorphine, especially in the, if they're in a dose under 24 milligrams, we have a fair number of them available. Um, and so if you talk to me back when I first started my practice, which I'm not going to reveal how long ago that was, you can you can figure that out for yourself. Um, the general consensus then was we should stop with patients buprenorphine you know, when they came into the hospital, sometimes even for palliative care needs, because we couldn't get control of their pain, or at least that's what we thought we worried about what happened. And I worried at that time, because as alluded to before, once that buprenorphine would wear off, you know, it would inevitably be a Saturday, and I wouldn't be around. And I worried that the patient would, you know, be at risk for over sedation, because now the buprenorphine is no longer around, and they're on all of this full agonist. So over the past few years, the consensus has really shifted to keeping the buprenorphine around and making sure that we keep the patient on it. And not just because we worry about once they're off of it, if they have increased sedation, but because we worry about them having increased risk of relapse. And we know that buprenorphine is also an analgesic. And so that does offer some analgesic properties. We can split the dose um, and we can try to optimize that analgesia. Um, we can use non-opioids. We can still use full agonists in addition to it. So lots of options and we can lower the dose. So there's lots of ways to manipulate the analgesic. The concern is when we stop it, that it won't be restarted or that, you know, in the transition, something will happen and there'll be a blip in that therapy. And then we run the risk of, of the patient being very vulnerable to a relapse. So as long as the patient is agreeable, you know, sometimes I've encountered patients who are terrified to continue it because they're, you know, for whatever personal beliefs. And so we'll work with those patients to, you know, think about ways to be creative or if we need to stop it, when to stop it and how to do that. So, you know, on occasion, you may have to stop the buprenorphine, but that should be very patient, very specific to the patient, very, you know, working together as a team to figure out what the best approach is. But overall, the general approach should be to continue that buprenorphine and if needed, consider lowering the dose. So that would be kind of my advice there. And that's what the general recommendation is kind of across the board more recently. Thanks, Dr. Yurisky. So to give some final thoughts, uh, treating a patient's pain isn't just about treating and aiming for a number. Instead of titrating to a pain score, we need to set expectations and functional goals with our patients. The patient's unable to walk from the pain, they likely need a better pain management plan. If the patient is saying the pain is 9 out of 10, but it's meeting their functional goals, we need to reassess with the patient and about what we expect from analgesics and adjust the pain plan if needed with a special focus on the patient's goals and focusing on how the analgesics are helping achieve this or not. And this also goes for patients with OUD who are often faced with stigma that gets in the way of their pain care. When handling mistrust with uncontrolled pain, it's important for us clinicians to stop and remember that this is a neurochemical and biological disease state and should be treated as such. If a patient presents diabetes, would you withhold their insulin because you know their plan to go home and eat a cupcake, even though you advise them not to eat that. No, we would treat them and stabilize them as we do for this patient population, trying to put judgment aside. It can be very challenging to care for patients who have OUD, so this is important to note. Seeking out support for ourselves when it gets hard is also really important to help us see more clearly. So setting these goals up front is far better than reactively once patients are seemingly asking for more medications without an obvious indication. Additionally, we want to assure them that we are treating their withdrawal symptoms, because if not, they'll definitely be asking for more due to their severe symptoms that they are experiencing. Dr. Dow or Dr. Yurisky, do either of you have any final thoughts? 
No, I mean, I think it's really important to think about the stigma and the fears of patients when they do approach and, you know, why they may actually have waited until the pain was really, really bad to present uh, because of fear of being stigmatized or not being treated adequately. So I really appreciate thinking about the patient holistically and the disease holistically um, and, and working to advocate for our patients. And I think that's, the, you know, the best that we can do and what we need to continue to do, Dr. Dow. Yeah, no, I would just I would just add that if you found this topic interesting and um, you do a little more research on your own, you can be a champion for this information in your own facility or healthcare system to educate uh, other uh, healthcare team members from all disciplines. I think it's an important topic to improve our patient outcomes and provide the best quality care that we can. And I just wanted to say thank you for letting me be a part of this conversation. Thank you both so much. That's all the time that we have today. Again, thank you both so much for joining us today for discussing treating acute pain in patients taking buprenorphine. If you haven't before, I encourage all of you to check out ASHP's online resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as the Ambulatory Care Research Center, the Preceptor Toolkit, and the Research Resource Center, Clinical Pharmacy Resources, and more. Thanks again for tuning in for this session of Hot Topics in Pharmacy, and we hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the ASHP podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.